1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel, coming to you as before from Sapporo in Japan. Today we'll be talking to Mara Elizabeth Cunningham, an associate at the University of Michigan's Lieberthal-Rogel Centre for Chinese Studies about the new third edition of the book, China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, co-authored with Jeffrey Wasserstrom and published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. Knowing about China, Cunningham and Wasserstrom say in their preface, remains an essential part of being an engaged citizen in the 21st century world, end quote. And this is a difficult statement to disagree with. Yet as the authors also acknowledge, seeking to explain what everyone needs to know about China is a daunting proposition, all the more so, we might suggest, at what many recognise is a bigly unpredictable juncture of world's history. Nevertheless, China in the 21st century tackles the major issues head-on, interweaving context from China's recent and more distant pasts with present-day insights and illuminating events, people and periods, little known outside China, but of vital importance within the country, from the Taiping uprising to the May 4th movement and many others. Reciprocally, the book also expertly punctures many of our preconceived ideas about China's past and present, which, if you can imagine such a thing, seem to have become distorted in Western public discourse, from the Cultural Revolution to Tiananmen Square and contemporary Chinese nationalism. With subtle good humour and a penchant for pithy phrasing, Cunningham and Wassenstrom also tackle the big fun questions head-on to show us how today's China operates – from questions about Confucianism's compatibility with capitalism, whether the Communist Party is just another dynasty, and the much-beloved, is China likely to become a democracy, to name just a few. Such questions would have many commentators and academics either fleeing for the hills or deconstructing the terms of discussion so far as to offer an entirely unintelligible answer. But readers who have wondered about such things will find well-informed and, most importantly, eminently digestible responses to these and many other questions in this book. Please tell me more. You are probably thinking, and so it's with great pleasure that I say, Mara Elizabeth Cunningham, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much, Ed. It's great to be here.
1: Fantastic. Now, Mara, I wonder if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, your background, and how you became interested in China in general, and and also specifically in the things that you're specifically interested in.
0: Sure. So I started college in the fall of two thousand as a history major, and. Uh, I wasn't really interested in any particular kind of history. I just had always liked it in high school. But when I started college, um, all of the freshman history majors at my school, which was St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, were assigned into a a freshman seminar, and it happened to be about China. And I knew basically nothing about China at that point. I had read The Good Earth in high school, uh, but I had never really paid much attention to the country. I didn't know anyone who had... Traveled there or lived there. And that that semester, I felt like everything I read was a revelation and it got me really excited about learning more. And so I took another class and another class and another class. This was also, as I said, it was the early 2000s. And so China was all of a sudden really in the news. It was a rising power and increasingly important on the global stage. And so it just seemed like a very Natural time, I think, to get into the study of China because all of a sudden people weren't looking at me strangely when I said I was interested in China or studying Chinese. They said, "Oh, that, that's probably really good. You know, we're going to need people who speak Chinese," or, or, or they said, "You'll be able to make a lot of money if you go into business." Uh, but that wasn't the path that I chose. So after I graduated from college, I moved to Beijing and started studying. China. Well, I had studied Chinese in college, but I, I really started studying at uh, intensively while living there for six months. And uh, along the way, I decided to do a master's degree in East Asian studies. I went to Yale for that and then moved back to China to go to the Hopkins Nanjing Center, uh, the program there, and then um, decided to go ahead and do a PhD in Chinese history. But before I started the PhD, I had already sort of figured out that teaching and a tenure-track Classroom based life wasn't really going to be for me. Um, I enjoyed teaching, but I didn't think it was the best thing that I did. I thought I was a much better researcher and writer. And so I went into a PhD saying, I want to do this degree, I want this training, I want this experience, but I want a different outcome than is. You know, typically assumed for most people in doctoral programs, and I was fortunate enough to get accepted to a department at the University of California, Irvine, that has something of a track record of producing history PhDs who go on to do other things off the tenure track. And I also um, worked there with Jeff Wasserstrom, who was my doctoral advisor, and he already at that point had spent years, you know, working as what we would call a public intellectual, so writing op-eds, writing book reviews for general audience publications, and so forth. And so it was very exciting to have, have him as my doctoral advisor, since he was able to guide me not only in you know the sort of typical PhD student things, um, but also to help me develop my career as a freelance writer. And at UC Irvine at that time, um, just before I started in the program in 2008, Jeff and Ken Pomerantz, who was another China historian, and Kate Merkel Hess, who at that time was a graduate student there, had started a blog called The China Beat. And so, so after, actually a little bit before I even started, and before I even moved to California, I was writing for The China Beat. But after I got there, I really got involved in writing for it and then editing it after Kate um, graduated and moved on to Penn State. And so I, throughout my years in graduate school, was sort of working on this dual track program where I was learning about China in a very traditional academic sense, but also learning how to be a writer, learning how to speak to broad audiences and talk about China in ways that would be accessible to pretty much anyone. And those two things, I think, really come together in China in the 21st century, what everyone needs to know, because this is a book that is supposed to be, you know, very much, um, it very much draws on academic training and deep scholarship. You know, we are, if you look at the end of the book, we are drawing on um, lots and lots and lots of different people's work, but we're sort of bringing it together in a way that is meant to be accessible to um, college students, people going on study abroad programs who want to learn a little bit about China before they go to the country. Uh, Pretty much anyone who reads about China in the morning newspaper and thinks this sounds, this all sounds very interesting and important, but I don't really know the background, so I wanna know more. And we hope that those readers find the book useful
1: absolutely yeah no that that really comes through um and i guess actually uh, this question about writing uh for a general readership and its relationship to uh academic uh research and 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 writing uh within the sort of academic frame was something i wanted to ask about um do you see those as uh spheres that are uh inevitably kind of or or, sh- or should always be interlinked or is there a separate space that is academia and then a separ- another space that is it is the, the public engagement side. Or I mean, do, do you uh, yeah do you understand those things as as a distinct worlds that need to be brought together, or are they actually really part of the same world on a spectrum?
0: I think that can be actually a very personal question for different academics because there are some people who really enjoy the sort of more public engagement side of the work, and many people who would far prefer to stay writing academic articles, what we would call, you know, academic monographs, um, staying in that sphere. And so, as you said, it it is sort of a spectrum. And maybe I fall far more on the public engagement side than other people. And then there are plenty of academics who are all the way at the opposite end of me at the academic end of the spectrum. And then there are people, there are people in the middle who, you know, really have um, the ability to do good work in both spheres. And, uh, you know, because of the way my career has evolved, I haven't spent as much time working on things like academic publications. So for example, I haven't revised my dissertation, I haven't turned any part of that into articles or book chapters or things like that. And that's largely just more sort of structural constraints that I don't necessarily have the time or the resources to do that um, because I'm not in an academic institution. So I don't have a research fund. I don't have book leave or, you know, sabbatical or anything. Uh, So it's much more feasible for me to work on shorter projects and do this sort of writing for public audiences
1: right no well i think uh given the sort of hotness of the topic of uh precariousness of academic uh work and 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 the uh the the spectrum itself of uh being secure in in an academic position, I think that's a uh a status that many uh listeners will recognize um Perhaps we can move on just to talk specifically about the China in the 21st century book uh, project and and how it was that you became uh, involved in it. Um, If I understand right, uh, Jeff Otterstrom had written the first edition of the book uh, solo, more or less. Uh, Is that correct?
0: That's correct. That was published in 2010.
1: Right. And so uh, I guess in terms of, um, you you know, it's quite an intriguing project from that point of view. uh, In that, you know, a co-author, yourself, comes on board later um and so how did that work in terms of apportioning duties and 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 dividing up the writing and revising and uh, i guess i'm also curious to know what kind of revisions were necessary uh, say between the second and the third uh, editions uh, i mean we'll get onto the sort of detail of uh, especially this uh, future chapter that comes at the end of the book later um but uh, was it was it the case that there were revisions required all the way through? Um, and 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 yes, uh, as I say, uh, to learn something of the collaborative process would also be really interesting.
0: Sure. So as I said, Jeff wrote the first edition solo, and that was published in 2010. Um, I should say that this book is part of a series published by Oxford University Press. So what everyone needs to know, and there are books about all sorts of different topics, and they're supposed to be shorter. They're written in a question and answer style, and they're about um, issues or places that are in the news. So you know, China in the 21st century. Now there's an India in the 21st century, um, but there are plenty of other titles as well. So this this fits into a series. We didn't pick the format or um, the subtitle or things like that. So after Jeff wrote the first edition, um, it sold really well, which, of course, the press, I'm sure, was hoping for. Uh, but, yeah, they were really excited. But, of course, since the book is about the 21st century and that keeps happening, you have to go back every few years and, you know, keep updating it to make to keep things current. So. In 2012, um, I was still in graduate school. At that point, I was um, just about to move to Shanghai to work on dissertation research and writing. And Jeff and I had been doing some co-writing together of short commentaries and um, an article in in a journal and so forth. And he came to me and said, Oxford University Press wants to do a second edition of the China book. Um, And I was wondering if you'd like to come on board as a contributing author. so that was sort of a sort of arrangement where the press um, paid me a flat fee up front, and I worked on the book and got a credit on the title page and you know at that point it was it was just sort of I, I went through and I marked all the places where I said, you know this needs to be updated, this needs to be revised and Jeff and I kind of traded the the drafts back and forth until we had a final version that both of us were satisfied with and you know, you asked about workflow. And I think that's, that's about the sum of it is just a a lot of emails going back and forth and keeping track of of which stage we're at. And I mean, there are certain things that are our individual strengths. And so we say, I'll take the lead on. um, So for example, in the, in the third edition, we added a question about, we added a couple of questions about women's history and feminism in China, which are things that I've read a lot about and written a lot about and done research on. So I wrote the majority those questions, and then Jeff edited my text, um, and then vice versa. You know, he would take the lead on on other issues, and then I would edit. But uh, I think at this point, you know, I've been looking over the the manuscript so many times in the editing process, and then doing proofs and so forth. Um, and I really, I can't tell you for the most part who wrote which sentence, just because, which is a good thing. I mean, that's that's sort of the, the ideal for a co-writing situation. Um, but, you yeah, know, we have, we have fairly similar voices. We each have our own individual writing or grammatical quirks that um, then we'll point out to each other and say, you know, he'll he'll point out how many semicolons i used or things like that um and so we sort of can polish those edges once we recognize them so we did the second edition as i said that was we worked on it in 2012 we turned in the manuscript just after the 18th party congress when xi jinping became the, the leader of china and um because of that because of the timing we weren't really able to say much of anything about Xi Jinping. We just sort of said, he's now now the leader and we don't know what this means. So uh, again, the book, it sold very well, um, I'm happy to say, mostly because I I should note, it's been used by a lot of study abroad programs and a lot of college courses. And those have been really important audiences for us, which is fantastic. Um, That's that's perfect. So in uh, 2016, the editor came back to us again and said, "Okay, you know, I I have good news, which is the book is continuing to sell well. But I also have bad news, which is it looks like things in China have changed quite a lot since you last updated it. And so he said, I think we need a new edition just based on newspaper stories I'm reading and so forth. And so this time um, I said, you know, I, I think it's more appropriate for me to be a co-author of the book because, you know, at this point I've done a lot of just as much work on it as Jeff has. And so that was um, very, you know, just something to something to work out. Um, and so we started working on revisions in the summer of 2016, which was a little bit difficult, um, only because I was moving from New York to Michigan at the time. So I was sort of working on this in between You know, packing and moving and dealing with mortgage details and so forth. Um, But at first, the revisions were going really well. So they were they were significant. Um, One of the things that. You know, when you say that you have a third edition of the book, especially for academics, what that usually means is like you wrote you wrote a new introduction and you updated some of the statistics or maybe you added an epilogue saying, oh, this has this important, relevant event has happened since I last published this book. So I'm going to talk about that in a few pages Um but as we all know from college, you know, a lot of times one edition doesn't necessarily look very different from the, from the next, which is why students say, why do I have to buy the new edition when it's so much, so much more expensive than the previous one, but it's basically the same. That's not the case for this book. Um, we really took the second edition, we ripped it apart, and then pieced it back together, adding in new material in many places, revising very, I mean, we wound up writing two complete drafts of this manuscript Um, front to back so every yeah every single paragraph in the book has been revised to some extent Um, sometimes just you know changing up the sentences you know the sentence structure the grammar or again sort of polishing those edges because when you have three editions like it's it starts to become a Frankenstein's monster of a work where you just you you can start to see the gaps and you see where it was stitched together and so we really had to um, go through it pretty thoroughly to make sure that those um, joins weren't so noticeable, but also just a lot has changed in China over the past five years and, and a lot has changed in the United States. And so, as you said, we have an entire chapter on U S China relations and so we had a lot of changes, changes to that.
1: Yeah. Well, that comes through pretty clearly. I mean, I should say that certainly from a reader's point of view, the, the, the joins or, or the, uh, the authorial voices you're absolutely right there's no uh sense that there are two people really which is of course uh, a very good thing because there's absolutely no discontinuity between um bits written by one of you or the other and, and if you can't even work work it out yourself then <laughs> that's, a, that's a mark of how well you've done uh, in smoothing things over um but it also really comes through um i mean as we move on to talk about the sort of uh, the nitty-gritty of the book a bit more um it does really come through that, that the whole thing has been uh, yeah very thoroughly ripped apart and and reconstituted, as you say, because um, although uh, the trajectory of the book moves in a relatively um, direct uh, historical and chronological direction, actually woven throughout are all kinds of really useful... Contextual notes and, and and observations of very very contemporary stuff, uh, even when referring to um, quite distant history. Um, so it really uh, has paid off. I think that uh, that that thorough uh, reworking of everything. Um, so I guess uh, if we start uh, in sort of part one, the the whole book is divided into two parts, um, right? Which is. Uh, one dealing largely with uh, with history, and one dealing largely with the present and the future. Although, as I say, these are kind of uh, uh, quite. Skillfully uh, interwoven all the way through, Um, the first part has three chapters uh, dealing with schools of thought, imperial China, and revolutions and revolutionaries, uh, respectively. Um, So perhaps we could go straight into the 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 first, the very first um, uh, chapter of the book, uh, the schools of thought one, um, in which uh, I should say Confucius looms pretty large um, as again, uh, as he is wont to do uh, in contemporary China. So that's perfectly appropriate. But uh, perhaps you could say uh, something about, uh, about about Confucius and how you approach him uh, and and what he tells us about uh, broader trends uh, in terms of a- attitudes towards history and, and towards uh, schools of thought uh, in the Chinese context now.
0: Sure. So of course, um, the title of the book is China in the 21st Century. So I think people might open it up expecting us to just start in 2000. But there's a lot about China that you have to understand about Chinese history and philosophy and literature and things like that before you can really begin to contextualize current day events. And so that's what the first half of the book does. Um, it tries to give the reader that background knowledge as quickly and efficiently, but also thoroughly as possible when you're working at the pace that we are. Um, I should note for people who haven't seen the book, it's it's only 150 some pages long, um, of of the text or just under, just over that, I guess. Uh, So we're dealing with, yeah, we're dealing with a lot of information very quickly, but we want to give the reader the background knowledge that they need to then understand what we're talking about in the current day. And with China, there's no more fundamental background knowledge than Confucius. So we start out, you know, the very first question of the book is who is Confucius? And so we explain a little bit about his history, his philosophy, the people who wrote against him or wrote alongside him. Um, and we do cover also Taoism and legalism and, you know, the other, other important schools of thought, but, um, what you're talking about as far as the trajectory, we want to convey to the reader that Confucius has not had, um, a smooth ride in China, especially over the past century that, you know, his status now or the status of Confucianism now isn't what it was 50 years ago. And so we get into the various ups and downs of his reputation, you know, starting from the new culture movement in the May 4th era through Chiang Kai-shek into the Mao era when he was most decidedly on the Alps. And then we wind up um, talking about the sort of, revival of Confucianism or, you know, how Confucianism has been brought into communist party ideology over the last 20, 25 years. Um, So this is of course most explicit in calling their overseas uh, centers Confucius institutes. Uh, But then there are also other ways, just um, the way that Confucianism is talked about in Chinese, by the Chinese Communist Party these days, and so we we try to put that in context and explain that it's not that Confucius has had has always had this stature in China that actually his fortunes have risen and fallen um, over the past century and you know someone looking at china today would just assume oh confucius has always been important you know for the past 5000 years or whatever <laughs> you know 5000 years of chinese history and um so we and we talk about that at several points too about that number uh but it's just i think in the american imagination confucius and confucianism is assumed to be one of those sort of immortal enduring parts
1: of absolutely china. yeah absolutely i think I think yeah. this vision of the sort of mystical bearded sage making these kind of inscrutable pronouncements you know this is this is such a uh kind of pushed forward sort of a figure uh in in uh, kind of popular imagination of what you know Chinese philosophy is about and, and and everything so um it's a really useful exercise i think to uh to kind of clarify that a little bit and and as you say um I, one really interesting thing you point out in re- relation to the confucius institutes is um how it, it actually would seem quite surprising to people uh, of a kind of cultural revolution uh, generation uh to, to see that you know this is the flag bearer for chinese cultural diplomacy overseas um i mean possibly cultural possibly also partly political as you point out um, right. but uh, the uh, that that generation would you know There's a certain amount of cognitive dissonance potentially there, uh, given that they grew up at a time when he was being lambasted left, right, and center. Of course. So that's that's incredibly useful. Um, Now, something of a similar fate perhaps has visited uh, a lot of other – uh, sort of artifacts of you know, the imperial period in in China, uh, and your next chapter uh, deals with uh, that imperial period specifically uh, in many cases in, in re- relation to the various wars and uprisings and revolts uh, that occurred uh, throughout the long long. Um, dynastic period of China's history. Um, so I just wondered if we might talk about that uh, in conjunction with the next chapter, which is revolutions and revolutionaries. Um, since uh, obviously moving up to the present day, it's the revolutions of the 20th century which uh, which have brought China to which brought China to the um, current sort of uh, political situation it's it's been in since. Um, now uh, I, I wonder um, what was it. That you kind of especially wanted to communicate about the importance of the Imperial period um, and given that lots of what you talk about is the conflicts and the wars do you feel that uh, you, you yourself saw those periods as uh, uh, those events as specifically uh, very formative um, and 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 should historians in general uh, including uh, public historians uh, be focused on on these kind of uprisings and, and, and conflicts
0: yeah I think you know certainly, I, I think we wanted to um, give the reader a sort a an idea of why the dynastic system fell, and so we were looking a lot at what are the different destabilizing influences, or what are the different um, societal frictions that in the early 20th century boiled over and caused the Qing dynasty to fall and the end of the imperial system in China. So it's perhaps um, for us as writers a, not teleological in the sense of, you know, we're we're driving too hard at the conclusion, but we want to give the reader the tools to understand why do you have the system that endured for, you know, thousands of years, even though different dynasties came and went. The imperial system itself endured over, you know, many centuries. So, what is it that then caused it to fall so suddenly in the early 20th century? And to do that, I think we need to explain all of the different unsettling factors that were always there beneath the surface, and then sometimes exacerbated by outside influences, such as during the, the 19th century, with we talk about the Opium War, um, but also the Taiping Uprising, and so forth. So. Yeah, we, we really need to explain um, what was the system, what were its strengths, but also what were its weaknesses. And in a lot of cases, those are, as we've said, these different conflicts, different wars and um, different clashes within society that might have been smoothed over on a short term basis, but in the long run were deeply unsettling to the, Chinese, the imperial system.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's probably uh, incredibly, I would say that is definitely very valuable context because uh, when we think about uh, the end of uh, not just the Chinese uh, imperial age, but also, for example, uh, the Russian or, or Ottoman uh, imperial periods uh, in, in the 20th century, it seems like these came about as a result of sudden and very unexpected cataclysms. Yeah, we have these visions of uh, palaces being stormed and, uh, and uh, monarchs being exiled and executed. Um, but in fact, uh, it's absolutely the case that there were a great deal of sort of structural uh, frailties, which underlay uh, the uh, the particularly, as you say, the Qing position in the 19th century. Um, You you, you highlight the uh, Taiping rebellion in particular as a sort of overlooked um, uh, set of occurrences in uh, the 19th century uh, Qing uh, kind of experience. Can you just say a little bit more about why it is that that is such a significant event that so many have overlooked?
0: Yeah. It's, again, because we're writing it, this book is, it's largely for an American audience. I mean, it has been sold around the world, um, but because we have a chapter on US-China relations and so forth. And certainly I can say coming out of an American educational system um, until I got to college, I had never heard of the Taiping uprising. I, I can and, assure
1: you that, that on the other side of the Atlantic, it's uh, equally, utterly unknown. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right. And and there were British troops involved in it, um, which is even more surprising. And that, so that's I think what we were trying to write against was that that lack of knowledge about something that was so cataclysmic. I mean, it was you know tens of millions of people died, and it completely shook the Qing rule for you know the better part of two decades, really, from start to finish. And yet, and it was happening at the same time as the American Civil War. And yet it's so, you know, overlooked in um, most, you know, certainly American history textbooks. As I've said, it's not really something that's covered in your basic freshman or sophomore world history course in high school, or at least it wasn't when I was there. Um, and so I think there we spent a lot of attention on it because it was this really important event. It could have brought down the Qing dynasty, and it very nearly did. But, you know, somehow it survived. the dynasty survived and managed to hang on for another um, several decades. And so we wanted to really look at maybe you could say what might have been in terms of this could have um, ushered in a completely new regime for China much earlier than um, was actually the case. But also it's just, it's an important event um, that's getting more attention in recent years. Um, but it's still something that I think the average American doesn't necessarily know very much about. And we wanted to make sure that they really understood what it was.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's uh, it's definitely a, a very important mission. And we haven't uh, said a great deal about the, uh, the detail of, of what it was, but perhaps this is a tantalizing uh, hint at something that's... Uh, readers or listeners should, uh, well, listeners should become readers, uh, well, pick up the book. and, and Yeah.
0: And <laughs> just in terms of that detail, I, I also want to say that, um, and I saw this even when I was teaching Chinese history in graduate school or immediately after, um, when you talk about the typing, the sort of uh, impulse is to focus on what we consider the weird parts. So, you know, Hong Xiuquan and his version of Christianity and we, you know, God's Chinese son and all sorts of, you know, that kind of really gets, I think, the headlines. Um, but we wanted to go a little bit deeper than that and also talk about, you know, why was this a threat? Why did, why was something that maybe to, you know, modern eyes and ears sounds a little bit odd, but why did it appeal to so many people? Why was he able to attract so many followers? and not just celebrate the, or not even celebrate, but not just look at it as something kind of wacky, but really talk about why was this an appealing alterna- alternative to what was going on in Beijing?
1: Yeah, right, right. No, that that that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and perhaps uh, something uh, or s- some similar things could be said if we uh, leap forward uh, a century or so and and uh, you do cover uh, a great deal of what occurred in the interim, um, in the book. Um, but if we move forward to, to Mao, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a similarly sort of, um, uh, well, a figure, uh, about whom the wacky and, uh, and sort of, um, extreme aspects, uh, are, are better known, um, than, than the, than the detail. Um, now, one thing that was particularly interesting to me during, uh, your discussion of, of, of Mao and why he's so popular in China, um, is, uh, to do with the sort of, uh, Attractive historical comparisons, at least to a, to a US and and also I would say to a, a European um, uh, audience, um, that is with Stalin and Hitler, um, and so uh, you discuss uh, whether these are you know um, entirely useful comparisons. Um, spoiler alert. Not really, um, and actually suggest Andrew Jackson as a closer analog, the, the uh, uh, American um, president. Perhaps you could just say a little more about about how you came to that uh, <laughs> how you came to that conclusion and and, and in general, um, what, what it is that you wanted to say about Mao's popularity and, and his enduring uh, influence on on the modern day uh, People's Republic.
0: Yeah, so I mean we absolutely wanted to portray Mao as a more complicated figure, not just as a monster but also not as any sort of deity. Uh, and to explain why is Mao still popular in China? I mean, certainly you'll meet plenty of people in China who will criticize individual policies or who will say, yes, there were bad years. Um, but of course, he's on the money. He's, his portrait is hanging in Tiananmen Square. He's someone who you really can't attack in the eyes of the Chinese Communist Party, um, even with their... Their judgment that he was 70% right and 30% wrong. And so we're just trying to explain Mao is a more complicated figure, certainly than Hitler um, is treated in Germany, where you know it's just this was this was evil and you know, no question about it, end of discussion. So when we came upon Andrew Jackson as um, the parallel, and I should say I think that's in the first edition of the book. So I think Jeff came up with that one of his own. I don't want to claim credit (laughs) for uh, something that was his work originally. Um, But, you know, in American history, Andrew Jackson is is also a complicated figure, uh, although I think in recent years, more attention has been focused on the sort of um, the horrors of his time as president and certainly the treatment of American Indians. But at the same time, you know, his face is still on our $20 bill, For the moment, um, there's a chance that might be changed, although perhaps not. Um, Donald Trump has celebrated Andrew Jackson and, you know, spoken of him uh, admiringly. And we just want to say that he's someone who, you know, he was recognized as an important person in his party and um, someone who was really a leader of that party um, during his time. Uh, before his presidency and during his time in power and so that that 's kind of where that parallel comes from is someone who did great things, did awful things, and is not necessarily remembered only for the evil, you know, but that there are also still people who celebrate his accomplishments and you know it's an imperfect analogy, as Jeff will be the first to admit it 's just trying to say this is more complicated than. Total evil like Hitler or Stalin, Um, but that there's a reason or there are ways in which the Chinese Communist Party still recognizes Mao for his accomplishments.
1: Mm, mm, mm. And And, and still needs to recognize him. Yeah, and still
0: needs him as a figure. So yeah, it's, again, it's an imperfect analogy.
1: No, but, I <laughs> but think We're that's, trying that's... to
0: find connections. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and I think uh, as uh, early in the book too, you, you do need to go right to the source of these things because um, if, as you say, and, and it is the case that people are laboring under quite a lot of, you know, not, not through any sort of willful fault of their own, but there are some illusions uh, about, about what China is like and, uh, and so on and so forth. And if the assumption is that Mao is a, you know, barbaric and, and only, you know, a sort of, uh, as I say, Hitler or Stalin-esque figure, then you can see why that would lead to a whole series of uh, further misunderstandings when, uh, as you also point out, uh, people realise that he's also on all the money and, uh, yeah, the big portrait uh, on, on Tiananmen Square um, and so on. Um, so that brings us, uh, I guess, quite neatly up to the sort of, uh, the, the present and future, uh, the second half of the... Um, of the book. Um, Now, this begins with this section from Mao to now. Um, So perhaps we can uh, dive right into into that chapter. Um, And I guess, uh, it's, it's, it's an intriguing kind of uh, period to approach the sort of time since the Mao era, uh, because you have obviously, um, uh, a certain challenge of periodization, uh, which which you bring up uh, relatively soon into that, uh, into that second half of the book, Um, that is, is it, the, is it the case that the Mao era is a distinct era, followed by the reform era, Deng Xiaoping, the post-Mao era, and, and have we now entered a new Xi Jinping era? Um, so perhaps you could say something about um, how you understand the, the sort of PRC era up to this time uh, in terms of distinct phases um, and, and how you deal with understanding that in light of the fact that Mao has this really enduring imprint uh, on, on the soci- on society and politics.
0: Yeah, so I mean, we certainly, I think the periodization that you just enumerated is pretty close to what we wound up with. Um, and that was something, again, we were writing and rewriting multiple times because um, we started working on the, the revisions for the book in sort of mid-2016 and we wound up finishing... The absolute final draft in November 2017. So even in that period of time, quite a lot of things changed in China, and we had to keep um, adjusting sort of our understanding, like, you know, oh, now Xi Jinping, his name has been added to the party constitution. Um, So, you know, perhaps we really are in a, a totally new Xi Jinping era, that I think if we had finished the manuscript just six or 12 months prior, we wouldn't have seen that Quite so clearly as a, a periodization break and so um, you know perhaps if we if we do a fourth edition a few years down the road maybe we'll even understand that periodization a little bit differently uh, because you know there are several different turning points I think um, reading the book 2008 comes through many times as a really important year for China and for Chinese politics and so forth but also 2012. As you know, the, the craziness of the political system in that year with um, Bo Lai and then the 18th Party Congress and Xi Jinping disappearing for a few weeks and so forth. Uh, so there are lots of different lots of different turning points, and maybe we won't really be able to see a clearly defined new period coming through. But certainly, in talking about you know the Mao era up until '76, and then um, getting into the reform era after that. And having that last until, you know, maybe until 2008, maybe to the early 2010s. But at the same time, we want to show the interplay among those eras. And so, you know, how is an under how is a thorough understanding of the Mao era important for the people in Chinese in the Chinese political system during the reform era? Because a lot of times they were working against or trying to correct things from the Mao era, but also still retain the legitimacy of Mao and the Chinese Communist Party. and not you know, So they certainly weren't willing to toss that aside and say, never mind, we're in a totally new era now. Forget about everything that happened before. They were trying to build on the previous era, adjust it, change things, say we're going to get rid of some of the elements of the Mao era that didn't work, but we're going to hold on to some that did. And you know, I think now under Xi Jinping, we're seeing... As the further uh, refinement and recalibration, again, not letting go of the legacy of Mao and the early Chinese Communist Party, not letting go of the legacy of Deng Xiaoping in the reform era, but further tweaking it to make this a Xi Jinping era.
1: Right, right. No, that, that makes sense. Um, and and how about uh, in in this context, the these this kind of fashionable comparison between uh, a dynasty uh, and you know with sub reigns within it uh, with the com- current uh, communist period? Um, what what what, what uh, sort of Uh, conclusions did you did you come to about the you have this question about you know how is the imperial era still alive in chinese politics and and you know i think this is a sort of of question that does occur to to quite a lot of people who think about um the way that imperial china was divided up into these dynastic periods um what do you think are the relevance uh, is the relevance of comparisons like that
0: right so again i mean as i said um at the very beginning, we are building on our academic knowledge and our scholarship, and so I think this is a different way of posing the question about how important was 1949. And so, you know, for many many years, academics talked about a total break um, in 1949; that it was this complete disjuncture and. In more recent years, we've been talking about crossing the 49 divide and, you know, looking at the continuities from imperial China to the Republican period to the Mao period. And so this is just a, a different way of phrasing that and saying, um, you know, yes, 1949, certainly, and 1976 are fundamental turning points in Chinese history. And we need to understand the discontinuities, but we also shouldn't overlook the continuities and talk about the ways in which certain things did endure from one regime to the other. At the same time, you know, in the question about um, is the Chinese Communist Party a new dynasty, we talk about the ways in which that comparison doesn't hold up. You know, it, it's certainly not the same as North Korea, where you have one family um, reigning for three generations. You know, in China, like there are there are absolutely leading families within the Chinese communist party, but just being born into one of them isn't necessarily guarantee that you're then going to rise to a position of power. Um, and so, so we're just trying to point out, you know, the ways in which these comparisons do or don't hold up or how an American reader who's coming to the book without much knowledge of China, um, the different ways that they should think about this, that yes, there are some continuities that cross the different periods and the different political regimes, but there are also things that don't hold up even within the same regime. So even under the Chinese Communist Party, you have these distinct periods of Mao, Deng and other reformers, and now Xi Jinping and other hardliners. Um, And so I think that's the kind of thing that, Certainly when I'm talking to American audiences, they often don't. I mean, they know that China has changed a lot, especially over the past 20 or 30 years, but they don't necessarily understand that even within the Chinese Communist Party, things change from time
1: to time. No, that that that's super helpful, and and actually uh, all the more relevant because, as you also point out, the Communist Party themselves are wrestling with these questions of continuities and discontinuities, and uh, negotiating how to dredge up things that they consider useful from uh, the distant and more recent pasts, uh, but also. Portray themselves as doing something new because obviously a lot of what was going on before had a lot of problems with it. So um, it's actually a kind of uh, an interesting sort of meta project, if you like, of uh, of, of negotiating some of those same uh, kind of struggles that the um, that the party itself is engaged in. Um, and then finally, if we uh, move on to chapters five and six, uh, the, the the last two chapters of the book, um, these concern U.S.-China misunderstandings and the future, uh, which uh, are pretty closely interlinked um, themes, the uh, the way I see it. And so um, perhaps you could uh, suggest, uh, or at least uh, summarize what some of these (laughs) misunderstandings uh, are as as you and uh, Jeff saw them, um, and how those Sort of misunderstandings may play out into the future, um, whether they'll be resolved and and what impacts will uh, uh, what what factors will impact um, china 's directions and the amelioration or otherwise of some of these uh, gaps in 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 communication and understanding
0: so in the chapter on u s china misunderstandings, I think the fundamental message that we try to get across is that China is far more diverse than any Americans tend to realize and diverse in many different ways. So we talk about ethnic diversity. um, We talk about age divides, you know, the the aging of the population and the differences, the different generation gaps. So someone who grew up under Mao versus someone who grew up under Dung and under Xi, you know, the different perspectives that they might have on politics and on the world from growing up in that sort of environment. Um, And... We talk about the, the sort of fundamentally different approaches toward media that people have in the in the United States versus China, um, the influence of state media versus commercial media, um, both within in, in China, you know, today, because there is now more of a combination of state media, commercial media, and then all the stuff that happens on the Internet, um, sort of outside the the media landscape, but very much Overseen by the state, Uh, and also the the different media landscapes in the United States, and how you have many competing opinions um, all vying for space, often in the same newspaper or on the same television uh, network. And so, we're just trying to uh, emphasize how much more complicated China is (laughs) than uh, most people realize. You know, if if all they see is Beijing and China, you know, so for people who go to China, but all they ever see is Beijing and Shanghai uh you know it's it's certainly a far more complicated country and you really need to get out into the the far west or the countryside um to understand the the many different sort of spheres within China uh but also the the differences across the United States and which again um if we were to rewrite this book in another couple of years I think there would be even more
1: Divides to talk about both in China and the United States. Quite possibly. I I just wonder, in relation to that um, uh, diversity of China that isn't necessarily seen uh, particularly clearly on the outside, how much of that do you think has to do with the fact that uh, Beijing itself uh, works quite hard to project uh, an image of, of unity and oneness?
0: I think that's a large part of it, that, you know, when when the Chinese Communist Party talks about 5,000 years of Chinese history, you know, they're obviously um, glossing over many, many changes that just a few decades ago they would have celebrated. You know, in the 1950s and 60s, it was all about the new China and the, the break with the past and so forth. So, yes, I think that's part of it. It's also the way Beijing has set up the foreign correspondence in China so that, you know, American news organizations in general only get so many um, journalist visas. And of course, if you only have a limited number of journalists in the country, it makes the most sense to put them in Beijing. And I do think, you know, now more than ever before, foreign journalists are getting out into China and they're really exploring the country. And there, they are filing stories for readers back here that emphasize the diversity of China, but that's a relatively recent change. That's only in the past 10, 10 to 15 years. Um, until then, you know, even when I do research into the 1980s or 1990s, and I'm looking at old copies of newspapers, you know, the vast majority of stories were filed from Beijing, just because the, the journalists had less ability to travel throughout the country. Um, and so I think that I see that change in journalism in journalistic coverage of China because I'm very deeply embedded in this field, but for someone who's just sort of casually reading a newspaper or watching TV or listening to the radio, they're not necessarily thinking in the same way about the, these changes in coverage and the greater mobility of journalists. And so I think the, I I do think that that emphasis as a country's diversity is coming through a little bit more, but we want to call attention to it and have people really Focus on the diversity, so that when they listen to a report on NPR or read something in the New York Times, they understand where it's
1: coming from. Mm, mm, mm. No, that 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 uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then moving on to the future, and and obviously uh, the changing journalistic landscape within China uh, for foreign correspondents could, could could play a part in this. Um, what how did you see things uh, moving forward, and and what particular challenges? Uh, would face china and and would face uh, the united states uh, in its kind of um, perception of china and vice versa
0: yeah so the chapter on the future um first of all is just hard for two historians to write um but it also that turned out to be a really horrible chapter to work on to be quite frank um because we started we actually started working on the revisions to that chapter i think like the first week of november in 2016 And so we were writing all these revisions on the assumption that Hillary Clinton was going to win the American presidential election. And then, of course, Donald Trump won. And we, Jeff and I basically stopped writing for about two months. Um, We kind of put it aside just because we felt like we weren't really sure what the future held anymore. Um, I think up until that point, as I said, our assumption was that Hillary Clinton was going to win and that any variables in the US China relationship were going to come from the China side that we knew, you know, Xi Jinping has this expansive um, expansive perspective for China that, you know, China's a rising power. We weren't really sure what was going to happen as far as the Belt and Road Initiative or South China Sea, but we thought if Hillary Clinton won then the U.S. side of the U.S.-China relationship would more or less continue along the trajectory that it had followed, you know, since the normalization of relations in 1979. Um, but when Donald Trump won, all of a sudden there were there were variables on both sides of the Pacific because almost immediately um, by, for example, accepting a call from Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan, Trump showed that he was willing to sort of challenge or put aside all of the the very carefully crafted diplomatic protocol that had gone into the relationship for so many decades. And so we weren't really sure, you know, what will the future look like under Donald Trump and Xi Jinping? And so we stopped writing for a couple of months. Then we, we finally got back to it and we, um, we were able to forge ahead and finish writing. As I said, I think we wound up doing two drafts of that chapter just because we kept adjusting things, um, and then realizing that we couldn't continuously adjust the manuscript for everything that was happening on a daily basis between the United States and China. Um, so we do, I mean, we don't, we don't try to predict anything too granular. We're talking about broad trends and, uh, so forth, but we do try to give a sense of, um, Where do we see things going? You know, what are the challenges that China is going to face in terms of, for example, natural resources, in terms of an aging population, um, economic slowdown. So we talk about things like that. Uh, What do we see the Chinese Communist Party doing to try to head off some of those challenges and, um, you know, prevent any challenge, um, anything that would undermine its position as the head of the country? Uh, and yeah, we tried to talk about U.S. China relations going forward to the best that we can. Um, and you know, and yeah, there's just lots of stuff that we didn't anticipate. Of course, one of the things that, uh, we didn't talk so much about that maybe, uh, would get more attention going forward is of course, um, North Korea, where we we allude to North Korea as a destabilizing influence in East Asia and in the U- U.S.-China relationship, but obviously we had no no way of knowing what was going to happen with North Korea this year in terms of things actually getting better, as far as we can tell, um, for the moment.
1: Yeah, Uh, well, I I think you could be forgiven for that, uh, to be honest.
0: (laughs) We really didn't see it coming.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's perfectly perfectly excusable. And actually, I should say that, um, uh, conversely, uh, you do actually – predict uh, the abolition of term limits earlier in the book yes. uh, without you know, that having not happened uh, when, when the book uh, was, when you would have finished writing it. So yeah, I think that
0: actually, that was um, so all throughout the sort of um, finishing process. So, you know, getting it copy edited and page proofs and stuff like that. I was convinced that something was going to happen that would require us to rewrite or that something was going to happen immediately after we, you know, signed off on the manuscript and I was really sure that the what we would have would be um, Jiang Zemin dying. That, because we do have a, a couple of paragraphs about Jiang Zemin and its importance. And
1: I think he'll never die, I think.
0: Yeah, that's, and that's, that's I mean, clear. the paragraphs certainly still make sense, you know, or will still make sense when he dies. Uh, but I, I thought that that would be the thing that would undermine something. Uh, but in fact, it turned out to be that, you know, we talk about the abolition of term limits, but we do talk about it as one of several possibilities when in fact, that's what happened, um I think, just about two weeks after we turned in the final, final manuscript and said, okay, go ahead, you can start printing the book. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's hard to anticipate all of these things.
1: Yeah, well, there's no, I mean, there's no convenient place to uh, put a stop on this, uh, you know, kind of a project, I think, especially at yeah. a time like this. Yeah, um, but,
0: but- and we're also talking more broadly, and, you know, the sort of day-to-day, you know, relations between the United States and China or what's happening in Chinese domestic politics, um, that day-to-day, those day-to-day events are less important than... The big trends and talking about the big picture and understanding the historical context. And so that's really what we're trying to get across. Um, It's not to, you know, talk about what happened in March 2018 versus, you know, November 2017 or something like that.
1: Sure, sure. No, I think that would be a, an unreasonable thing uh, for people to to demand of you. Um, and then the final, the final sort of section in the book that I should just flag up um, is uh, that there's a really fantastic further resources section. Um, you mentioned it earlier on, um, but actually as a reference work and as a source of a whole lot of uh, really. Uh, uh, rich material on uh, all manner of subjects relating to uh, contemporary China. Uh, The book also has a a great deal to offer in that regard. Um, But in any case, Mara, um, it's uh, been really a great pleasure talking to you and it was fantastic reading the book. Um, Before uh, I let you go, perhaps we can ask the traditional question, um, uh, much loved by the New Books Network. Concerning what it is you're working on at the moment, um, what do you have sort of in the pipeline, projects-wise, either academically or in this uh, public engagement space that we talked about? Uh, what do you have coming up?
0: Yeah, so I have I have two projects. Um, one that I'm working on more intensively at the moment is actually a graphic history. So I'm working with an artist. Um, this is part of a series also produced by Oxford University Press. And it's a series of um, graphic histories that are basically biographies of people um, for, and this is produced for world history courses in high schools and colleges. So the graphic history that I'm working on is a biography of the Chinese artist Zhang Liping, who drew these um, San Mao the Orphan the com- comics in the 1940s and 50s and so forth. And that's a project I've been kind of um, dabbling at for the past few years and now would really like to see it come to fruition so that's that's what I'm focusing on I think for the remainder of 2018 and then the other project that I have in the background where I'm just sort of collecting um, material and ephemera and so forth is a cultural history of lei feng um Yes. The, uh, the, uh, model soldier. And he's a figure who I think is just really fascinating. And again, the sort of weird aspects of his story tend to get celebrated and mocked and laughed at. Um, but I think it's important to take him seriously as a cultural figure and as something or someone who the Chinese communist party has held up as a model many times, you know, he sort of pops up repeatedly, um, from the 1960s to the present, so I'm just interested in seeing when he appears and why he appears and what purpose he serves.
1: Oh, well, that's yeah, that sounds absolutely fantastic. I, I yeah, I can't wait to see the result of that. I think I mean Leifeng, as a figure is probably someone who equally has. Uh, it, it, it's a it's a area of culture in which the Communist Party has perhaps been complicit in emphasizing uh, slightly more wacky uh, aspects. Um, but uh, anyway, that that would be great to read when it comes out. Um, well, Mara. I want to thank you uh, a lot for uh, being on the show today. Um, As I say, it was uh, really great to talk to you um, and I wish you all the best uh, with your future uh, projects. Uh, Listeners, thank you very much for listening to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network.